Good morning again, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you to praise our God who, who keeps us. We come now to uh, our time and our service to hear God's word preached. So I'd ask you to open up in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 29, where we are going to be in chapter 29 and 30 this morning, the deceiver deceived. Genesis 29, we're going to be in all of chapter 29 and 30. It's appropriate, though, before we read from God's Word to to again go to Him in prayer and ask for His blessing in our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's Word. So would you please pray with me once more? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray to you this morning that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, it is so easy for us to ignore or to to miss what you say in your word. Lord, to see it just for, for facts of history rather than the living God and your wondrous works. So Lord, this morning we, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law, that we would see Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all the blessings that are ours in him. And we pray you would do this not because of our deserving, but because of your rich grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's now something of a Christian cliche, the mountaintop experience. The mountaintop experience. We can all think of times when we've had a dramatic and memorable experience of faith, the the mountaintop. You might think of a, a retreat weekend, a spectacular answer to prayer, or a remarkable season of, of growth and fruitfulness. Maybe a time when your heart burned within you, when Jesus was revealed to you in his word. It's it's obvious to us in those moments, isn't it, that that God is with us. By his grace, we know a, a deep communion with God. But we we call them mountaintop experiences because that's not where we live life, is it? It's where we we summit. Take in the the grand view, but then descend the other side. Most of life is lived in the meadows or even the valleys. And in the meadows, in, in everyday life, it might be harder for us to see how God is with us. In fact, to the novice eye, it might seem that God is absent or at least withdrawn. We long to return to the the mountaintop again and and take in the view. So how about it, church? Should we expect the Christian life, should you expect your life to be filled with mountaintop moments? Is God still present with us, even in the day-to-day, even when it is hard to tell? In our passage this morning, Jacob is coming off his solitary mountaintop experience. God revealing himself in a dream, assuring Jacob that he would be with him, showing him a a symbolic ladder laden with angelic activity above his head wherever he goes. Our passage begins with Jacob almost skipping away from Bethel. But for the next 20 years, we have nothing that can compare to this 
this direct revelation from God in the dream. But what we find, of course, is that God is faithful to Jacob through the twists and turns, through, through hard labor and being cheated, despite his prayerlessness and trust in junk science, he is kept by God's grace. God leads, overrules, listens, and supplies. Our big idea this morning is that because we are kept by grace, God is present with us to lead, overrule, listen, and supply. Because we are kept by grace, God is present with us to lead, overrule, listen, and supply. If Abraham's story was about faith, faith in the gap between promise and reality, Jacob's story is all about grace, living in the grip of relentless grace. And our outline this morning comes right from our big idea. In the, the four sections of our text, we'll see God lead, overrule, listen, and supply. So first, God leads, then chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Second, God overrules, 29, 15 through 30. God listens, 29, 31, all the way through 30, 24. And finally, God supplies through the end of the passage. God leads, God overrules, God listens, God supplies. This morning, we will read all the two chapters, but not at once. Let's start by reading of his arrival in Haran and, and his reunion with his remote relatives. And as we read, pay attention to how God has led Jacob. So starting Genesis 29, 1 through 14. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. The word of the Lord. So it is, God has led Jacob over a vast distance with nothing but a staff to his family in Haran. Our first point, brothers and sisters, God leads. 
God leads. So after his mountaintop experience in Bethel in chapter 28, God continues on, or sorry, Jacob continues on his journey with fresh assurance of God's grace. When he was alone in the literal night, deserving God's justice for his numerous sins, he instead received grace. And in light of that grace, Jacob has pledged himself to God and continues on. Verse 1 literally says that Jacob lifted up his feet. It's an, it's an odd phrase, but it seems like he's, he's walking out of Bethel with a, a lighter step. And remember, this is, this is a long journey. It likely took months for Jacob to complete. Moses, our narrator, does a wonderful job building suspense in these first few verses. He doesn't immediately tell us where he's arrived. Simply a people of the east, and next, a well, and near that well, shepherds and their flocks. The well, he describes, is blocked by a large stone to keep it from being filled with sand, to keep other animals away. In verse 4, Jacob greets these shepherds. The suspense builds. Where do you come from? Haran, praise God. Well, do you, do you happen to know Laban? Yes, they do. Well, is he, he well? Yes, and not only, but his daughter, Rachel, is, is coming now with the sheep. We have a, a little exchange here in verses 7 and 8. Jacob exhorting them to, to get the flocks watered and out to pasture. I think this is a clue that Jacob has some skill as a shepherd, a skill which will be very useful to his uncle Laban soon. In communities where water was scarce, all the herds would be assembled before any would drink. It's a kind of accountability. So as they wait at the well, here comes Rachel. And Jacob, always the the go-getter, springs into action. He immediately removes the stone to water her flocks, which may have been an act of of some strength. And once done, he embraces her and, and kisses her with loud tears. I think we see in Jacob's action, his heart, that he is overcome with joy and relief that God has led him not only to the land of his kinsmen, but to their very well. And at the very moment, Rachel was coming out to water her sheep. And apparently Rachel joins him in this joy She runs to tell Laban, her father, and of course, Laban too is amazed by the news. In verse 13, he doesn't walk, but runs to meet Jacob with an embrace and kiss to bring him himself back to his home. At the end there, we see Jacob affirm it. You are my family, my bone and my flesh. I tried to emphasize it as we read. Did you notice how many times Moses uses family terms? Mother's brother, three times in verse 10. Sister's son. Here he is, exactly as Rebekah said to Jacob back in 2743. She said, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while. And here Jacob is right where he needed to be, with Laban, his mother's brother. I think it's easy in reading through your Bible to take this for granted. Remember, he had a tremendous journey, poorly prepared, 
with no GPS or fast food. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will bring me home. I think by Jacob's response, we see how amazed he is, overcome in the moment with loud tears and spirited hugs. Saints, we shouldn't imagine of Jacob's journey that at every turn he paused and waited for a divine voice from heaven to tell him where he should go. And certainly, though God can, we have no reason to believe that he was fed by ravens morning and evening with meat and bread. But somehow, he made it here, right where he needed to be. On the other side of the mountaintop, God remained with Jacob to keep him and lead him. Christian, I I hope you realize that most of the decisions that you will make in life will not be accompanied by a word from God. What do I mean? When you're trying to decide what to have for dinner tonight, God's leading doesn't mean you pray and wait for his audible voice or an appearance in a dream to tell you what to eat. The the New Testament, by example or command, does not expect us to make decisions like that. Nor does every situation have a very specific Bible verse. Yes, certainly there is more wisdom in God's word than, than what we make use of. Every word of it is given that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. But, but frankly, it doesn't give very specific instructions. It won't tell you who to marry or what job to take or where to live down to a T. So the question, just like with Jacob, is God leading even when we don't hear from him? Is God leading even when we don't hear from him? Well, church, the vast majority of God's will for your life is in black and white, revealed in the Bible. No, it might not tell you who to marry, but it tells you how to be a godly spouse and what to look for in a godly spouse. It might not tell you what job to take, but it certainly will tell you how to work for him and what kind of work is good in his world. It won't tell you when to retire, but it's full of wisdom how to live every day, working or not, for his glory. God doesn't just guide us through his word, though. It's the people of God, too. God tells us in in Proverbs 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls... But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. God gives other people, his body, the the people sitting next to you in the pew, your pastors, as, as an abundance of counselors for guidance. He leads us through his people too. So practically, I would encourage you, when facing a difficult decision, to seek godly counsel from other men and women. But it's not just his word and his people, but God also leads us by his spirit. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. To be a child of God is to be led by the spirit. 
This is why, for example, we make it a habit to pray before we read God's word. Only the Spirit can reveal its meaning to us, especially giving us the humility and wisdom to obey it. When we seek counsel, we seek the counsel of others who have the Spirit of God. Not every impression or conviction is from the Spirit, so it is wise for us to test them according to the Word of God and with the wisdom of of many counselors. And all that is the normal day-to-day leading. Not written in the clouds, no mountaintop experience, but it is all of grace. And as natural as it becomes, it is all truly supernatural. I think there's a way for us to be warned by Jacob in these verses, to not take God's leading like this for granted. Do you remember Abraham's servant who made a a similar journey back in Genesis 24? He was filled with prayer, seeking the Lord's guidance. And, And when he receives, he bows in worship and in explicit praise to God. By contrast, we see Jacob do nothing like that. We have no record of of Jacob seeking God's guidance. Though God leads him to exactly where he needs to be, we never see him give explicit thanks to God. The warning, church, do you follow God's leading by searching God's word, by trusting wise counselors, all dependent on his spirit through prayer. Saints, seek God's leading. If, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. Because we are kept by grace, God leads us every day. And saints, as God leads us, we have the confidence that he will accomplish his purposes despite our immaturity or others' malice. Let's keep reading, starting again in verse 15, to read how how Jacob, the deceiver, is deceived. Our second point, God overrules. God overrules. Starting in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, 
It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. Well, Jacob, the trickster, gets a taste of his own medicine, the deceiver deceived. Laban, who knows the deal, switches his daughters at the last moment without Jacob knowing. And we might wonder, where is God in all of this? Isn't God supposed to be blessing Jacob? Well, let's see how we got there. In verse 15, Laban suggests that that Jacob receive wages for his work, the work he's apparently been doing for a month. In verse 16, Moses gives us a bit of of, uh, uh, knowledge about this family to help us understand Jacob's choice. Laban has has two daughters, Leah, the older, and, and Rachel, the younger. Verse 17 says that that Leah's eyes were weak or, or soft. We don't know exactly what that means, but since it's contrasted to, to beauty, it's probably not something good. And because of that, Jacob names his, his wages, Rachel in marriage. You'll remember that Jacob, when he left his father Isaac, brought with him no bride price, no dowry. He left Isaac empty-handed. The bride price was a cultural practice where, where a man would give a large gift to the, to the father of the bride, partly to protect the women from spurious marriages. Well, here, instead of a monetary or a gift exchange, Jacob suggests seven years of labor as a bride price. And after that, Rachel would be given to him in marriage. So the labor begins in verse 20. It seems so romantic, doesn't it? The years seemed short because of how much he loved her. It's actually one of the the rare cases of of romantic marriage in the Bible. But honestly, it's too bad it didn't feel like longer because it will be short-lived. When the time comes in verse 21, it seems that Jacob has to demand that Laban live up to his half of the deal. But Laban does arrange the normal festivities But at the last minute, switches Rachel for Leah. Probably because of the veil, because it was dark. Probably some wine. Jacob is is clueless. And obviously when he discovers it the next morning, he heads straight to Laban and demands an explanation. What have you done? You have deceived me. The deceiver deceived. But the irony is even thicker. Laban replies, it is not our custom to give the younger before the firstborn. How improper to place the younger before the older. Sound familiar? Kind of like how Jacob, the younger, placed himself before his older brother. Deceived by the same trick. Jacob, it seems, honestly, is in stunned silence Laban agrees to give Rachel to him in marriage after a week with another seven years of labor to follow, totaling 14. Laban has cheated Jacob out of his his labor, the right wages for what he worked for. 
But more than that involves his daughters in this mess. It's going to have repercussions in their family for a long time. And let's be clear here, saints. Jacob should not have agreed to these terms. He was married to Leah. He didn't need any further revelation from God's word to know that taking a second wife was wrong, against God's will. This was clear from the beginning. God made one wife for Adam. Marriage was between one man and one woman. So we're left wondering, what are we to make of all this? Has God's leading failed? There is no mention of God at all in these verses. Where, where is he? Does he now have to resort to, to plan B, now that, that Laban has deceived and, and Jacob took a second wife in sin? No, it's, it's as we read in Ephesians 1, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. What men like Laban and Jacob mean for evil, he means for good. When we inevitably sin and others sin against us, God's will is not hindered. This has been the continual lesson of the book of Genesis and is, is meant to be a means of immense comfort for us. We remember God has promised to Jacob that he would have offspring like the dust of the earth. Genesis 28:14. This is the, the Abrahamic promise. And this line has gone through one of Abraham's sons, one of Isaac's, but that stops with Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons in all, and all of whom will carry on the Abrahamic promise. The solitary line is now growing into a people, a nation, 12 tribes. So despite Laban's deception, Jacob's sin, God is accomplishing his purpose. This doesn't mean that the, the ends justify the means, that God approves of, of his polygamy. But God means the mess for their salvation. You might cause us to think, brothers and sisters, do you, do you feel like you've messed your life up? In retrospect, what you've done is so contrary to God's will that you're irredeemable. Or maybe that you've suffered so much wrong there is no way it can be fixed. Or maybe you're thinking about that for someone else. What's clear from this story is that's not true. That God is so big and so good that he will accomplish his purposes despite our sin and the evil done against us. God leads and even when we do not follow, God overrules. His plan for you is eternally secure. Of course, the deception and sin lead to suffering. Suffering for Jacob, for Leah, for Rachel. Verse 30 says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But where Jacob fails, God listens. Let's read the next section, starting in verse 31, God listens. God listens. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. and He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Then she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you, would have, that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said. Then, <clears throat> Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And, Jacob, sorry, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her. And opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May God, may the Lord add to me another son. Well, brothers and sisters, here we have the account of the birth of 11 of Jacob's 12 sons. Benjamin, the the final and 12th, will be born after they come back to Bethel in Genesis 35. We won't get into every son's names and their meaning, but but here the nation of Israel reads of their their origin. Eleven tribes have their start here. But this is more than an account of their origins. It's, It's a tragic story of sister rivalry, of a family kept by grace where God is present to listen. Look again with me at verse 31. 
God sees that Leah was hated. Of all the people in the world, God knows the pain of this one woman. God is near to the brokenhearted. And as he listens, God opens her womb. She has four sons for Jacob when Rachel remains barren. God has his own purpose for Rachel. We'll get there. But first, you'll note in the ESV, each name has a small note at the bottom showing that that Leah's statement about the child is related to what she names them. Reuben, the firstborn, there in verse 32, means something like, see, a son. Notice her hope there at the end of verse 32. She is hoping that this son will earn her husband's love. But it doesn't. So with Simeon. Levi the third sounds like attached, still hope, hoping that Jacob will love her. And finally, in verse 35, her, her fourth Judah. Now I will praise the Lord. We wonder, has she, has she grown no longer hoping in the love of her husband, but resting in God's love instead? It's clear what is most precious to Leah is not God, but her husband's love. As much as as Leah suffers, she has an idolatrous desire for her husband's love. And and of course, Jacob should love her. In fact, she should be Jacob's exclusive love as her first and only wife. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Of her sons, Levi will become father of Moses and the priests, Judah, father of David and the kings, and one day Jesus himself. So she is is mother to some of the most important tribes in Israel. All this, though, is, is too much for Rachel to bear. She, it says, envies her sister in chapter 30, verse 1, even when she has Jacob's love. Do you see, church, idols don't provide satisfaction. Rachel has what Leah wants, but wants more. Leah has what Rachel wants, but wants more. Only God can satisfy. Whatever you're looking for, it can only be found in God. Rachel here foolishly demands that Jacob give her children, but of course he rightly acknowledges it. That it's only from God that children come. Let me give a word to my my brother husbands here. Just because your words to your wife are true don't mean they're godly. Yes, truth matters, but it's a bare minimum. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Notice Paul's measurement for our words. It's not just that they have to be true. Of course they do. But they also have to be good for building up, to give grace. Husbands, does grace mark your true speech to your wives? Well, Rachel here resorts to the same foolish plan that failed Sarai, to give her servant to her husband. But Jacob goes along with it, takes Bilhah as wife, but, but she'll never even be equal to, to Leah. 
Jesus sometimes called a concubine, sometimes still a servant. And Leah does the same in return. Zilpah, her servant, given to Jacob, and through, through her two more sons. Eight sons, but still saints. Rachel has no children. The next scene, starting in verse 14, needs a bit more explanation. Reuben, Leah's first son, finds some mandrakes. Mandrakes were, were an ancient fertility drug, sometimes called love apples. Of course, that's junk science, no proven effectiveness. But because of their, their rumored power, Rachel wants them. So she barters Jacob himself. For the mandrakes, Leah, if you give me them, you can lie with Jacob tonight. Trading what should not be traded. So they make the deal, and Leah conceives a fifth and sixth son, Issachar, Hire, and Zebulun, still hoping in Jacob's honor. Finally, one of her daughters is mentioned, Dinah, who will be important to the story in chapter 34. But finally, brothers and sisters, in verse 22, God listens to Rachel and opens her womb. God listens and opens. And the son is named Joseph. May he add, hoping for another son. Don't miss it. Moses makes no mistake. This is not due to the mandrakes, but God himself. Modern science might be more reliable, but still it is God who listens and opens or in his mystery closes. That's true of all medicine. Well, because this family and their envy and rivalry are kept by grace, God is near to listen. Even as we think, certainly, certainly this family is not the model nuclear family. Shouldn't God find another better tribe? Well, in case this isn't the most obvious thing in the world to you yet, brothers and sisters, God is gracious. Especially if you're here this morning and you're new to Christianity, you may have heard people describe the God of the Old Testament, where we're reading from now, as a God of wrath. Let me just say briefly, whoever claims that has no clue the reality they're missing in the Old Testament. Yes, our our God is holy, but our holy God is a God of abundant grace. The story of Jacob and his family is a story of God in his relentless grace. In his grace present with us. Psalm 46 says he is a, a very present help. A very present help in trouble. You wonder, how can someone be very present? Aren't they just present or not? Well, well, it's the way he is present. Present in grace. Present ready to help. Enough for any situation. My wife can affirm this, that, that though I am present, I often don't hear what she says to me. Sometimes due to my inattention, sometimes due to competing priorities. It's always helpful when she confirms, yes, I've heard what she said to me. Brothers and sisters, that is not true with God. When he is present in grace to listen, we don't have to do anything to get God's attention. To the objects of his grace, he is always very 
present, especially in times of trouble. If that's true, why do we never see Jacob turn to this this very present God for help? Why are we so slow to turn to this ever-present help in trouble? Why do we turn to other helps first? And despite what you confess, what do your actions show? What you believe about God's help? Saints, in the day-to-day, far from the mountaintop, God is still present to listen. Even when he feels distant and answers to prayer are long in coming, this is our hope. His attention was on Leah in her suffering, his ear to Rachel in her barrenness. And though it took years, God hears and answers in his way, in his time. Brothers and sisters, depend on God in prayer because God is present with us to listen. Clearly, Jacob takes the birth of of a son to Rachel as an important marker. It seems the seven years of service are done and he wants to go home. The, The little while that his mother predicted has turned into a decade and a half. But Laban isn't done yet. And more than that, God isn't done with his purposes for Jacob and Haran. Let's read our last section, starting in verse 25, our fourth point, God supplies. God supplies. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I, go, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know that the service I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will, be, will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set them a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that, that is, the watering place where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock toward the striped 
and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. God supplies saints. Well, at the beginning of our our reading here, Jacob requests to to go, which is his right, but but Laban asks him to stay. Laban apparently has become rich in these years by divination, has discovered that it's because of Jacob. You'll remember, Jacob is the hub of blessing to the world, the Abrahamic promise. So to keep him staying, he asks Jacob to name his wages. This is a win-win. Well, Jacob, in verse 30, affirms that it is from God that the Lord has blessed Laban wherever Jacob has turned but he needs to provide for his own family now. Well, the the deal they strike in short is this. Most lambs and goats were solid colors. Lambs white, goats some dark color. It was genetically rare for them to have some pattern. So this is Jacob's suggestion. He keeps shepherding the flocks, but takes out of the flocks the speckled, spotted, and the, the rare black sheep, and those will be his wages. It's an easy way to be accountable, very visible. And Laban agrees. This should work out in his favor, of course. But Laban tricks Jacob again. You'll notice in verse 32, Jacob suggested that he pass through the flocks to remove from it the speckled and spotted and so on. But in verse 35, that day Laban removed the striped and spotted and every lamb that was black and put them three days' journey away from Jacob. He's stolen Jacob's wages. Where is God in this? His promised promised person being stolen. But of course, because Jacob is kept by grace, God is present to supply. Jacob thinks the answer is in some junk silent silence peeling sticks and sticking them in front of the strong when they they breed. And what happens? Well, they breed striped, speckled, and spotted. But just like with the mandrakes, this has nothing to do with the sticks. God has promised to Jacob to supply what he needs. Through these flocks, food from their meat and milk, clothes through their wool and skins... Just as Abraham and Isaac experienced prosperity from God, even beyond what their labors warranted, God supplies Jacob and his family for their every need. You know, when Jacob gets to Esau later in Genesis, his gift to Esau is 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. As a greeting gift. He had come alone to Haran with a staff. He now has four wives, 11 sons, 
unnamed daughters and abundance of flocks. Brothers and sisters, in the 20 years Jacob has been in Haran outside the promised land, God has been absolutely faithful to his promise. Though there is no mountaintop experience again for Jacob, God has been present with him to lead, to overrule, Lord, to be kind to him. We read earlier in our service from Ephesians 1, that that wonderful passage describing some of the innumerable blessings that we have in Christ. It says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, the story of Jacob is the story of your life. Even without the mountaintop experience, you are kept by grace with God present to lead, overrule, listen, and supply. He gives you all these in Christ Jesus, the fountainhead of all grace. As John wrote, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The riches that Jacob acquired by God's grace point forward to the true treasure that we receive, that we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. We, by our sin, Deserve only God's good justice, his opposition to our evil. But because Jesus Christ willingly died in our place on the cross, taking the punishment that our sins deserve, we can receive eternal life, be forgiven of our sins, and have all the riches of his grace through every twist and turn of life you too can have the assurance that you will be kept by grace if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ. It's in grace in Christ that we have every treasure the world can know. Not cars and and fame, but God's love and grace and the forgiveness of sins and the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance eternal life with God. Because we are kept by grace, God is present with us to lead, overrule, listen, and supply. All that we need, saint, because we are kept in the grip of relentless grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless your holy name. Lord, for all the blessings you have poured out on us through Jesus Christ. Father, even when you seem distant, even when our experience of you is far from the mountaintop, we know, Father, that we are kept by grace. Lord, in the 20 years that that Jacob suffered in Haran, Lord, you were with him. Lord, not only to lead, but to overrule. Lord, in, in all the injustice done against him, you were with him. Father, you will keep us. Lord, you will listen and you will supply for our every need. Lord, we pray that 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 would be our confidence. Lord, that we would know that you are with us every day. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.